Welcome to another season of Wednesday nights. I have been missing these and looking forward to getting back into them as we continue our journey in the Bible from 30,000 feet soaring through scriptures. And so we last um, left off in the book of, oh, little quiz for you. Where do we leave off? Who remembers? Book of what? Huh? Job? 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 No. Jeremiah. No. Wow. Now you're making me doubt. I hope I studied the right books today. And I'm like, did I? Did we leave off? Book of Hosea. Book of Hosea. We started in the Minor Prophets. The last book we did before summer was the Book of Hosea. So that means we're getting tonight into the Book of Joel. All right. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's just go to Genesis. Let's start over. Okay. All right. We're getting there. It started with a J at least. So now, um, book of Joel. So yeah, make your way over there. And uh, so yeah, continuing our journey through the minor prophets. And uh, I, I think the minor prophets definitely get a bit of a a bit of a bum rap because everybody looks at these and go, oh man, these are the minors, right? They didn't, they didn't quite cut it at the major leagues and so they got demoted down to the minors. They're playing in the farm system here. And that's kind of how sometimes we think when we hear minor prophets as though these guys weren't as great or as significant as those major prophets that we have. But we understand that these Books are not classified as minor prophets because they're any less significant than the other books of the Bible, but simply because of the size of the content that we have in the books. But we all know that great things come in small packages. Can I get an amen from somebody here today? All right, amen. So there we go. We know that these books are packing every bit of a punch as we are in the major prophets, as we are in all the other books of the Bible. And so minor prophets, don't let it fool you here. These guys carry every bit of weight and wisdom as we see in the other books. And so we're going to continue on. The book of Hosea is what begins the book of the major, or the, sorry, the minor prophets. We've got um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel as part of the major prophets. So continuing on Hosea, then into Joel. We're going to Lord willing, we might break a record here tonight because we are going to attempt to potentially go through three books of the Bible here tonight and cruise through Joel uh, into Amos and then Obadiah. Now, here's the deal, guys. All right. Joel, three chapters. Amos, nine chapters. Obadiah, one chapter. What do we got all together? <laughs> okay. How about we do this? How about we stop with the questions tonight and I'll just give you the answers, maybe? That's what we should do tonight, okay? Boy, we're, we're like batting zero here, I think. Um, somebody said, I think it's, actually, now you got me doubting again and I'm not good at math. Uh, it's 13 chapters, right? 13. So listen, how many times have we covered a book with way more than 13 chapters on a Wednesday night? So I know you're thinking, three books of the Bible? Oh my goodness, 13 chapters. This is nothing. This is child's play, right? So... We'll see if we can do this. All right, yeah, exactly. Famous last words. Well, we'll see. So, starting with Joel. Now, Joel is written to the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. Amos 
written to the northern kingdom where his ministry centered in Bethel. And then Obadiah reaches outside the borders of Israel. And Obadiah is a message that's addressed to another nation, the nation of Edom. All right. And so we're going to be traveling around a lot here. We're going to be doing a whole circle from 30,000 feet looking at, you know, a, a large region here. But let's look at Joel to start with here. Now, Joel, not much is known about Joel other than he's the son of Pethuel, it says. Now, that's good. Only we don't know anything about Pethuel either. So really, we don't know a whole lot about Joel other than he's the son of Pethuel. Joel's name means, Joel, do you know what your name means? It means Yahweh is God. Yo El, Yo Yah, El, Yahweh, El, Elohim, God. So Yahweh is God. So there you go. Treasure, that may be a, a prophecy you're trying to give to yourself here to say, bring me the money, but that's not necessarily what it means here. So self-prophecies, we don't know how well those do. But um, So Joel, Yah, uh, Yahweh is God. Or, um, yeah, Yahweh's God. So that's what his name means. Now, when this is written here, when, when did Joel write this? Now, there's a bit of difficulty in placing the book of Joel as far as when his ministry was taking place. Scholars give various suggestions as to the date ranging from the 9th century all the way to the 2nd century. So it spans, you know, a few hundred years, really trying to pinpoint where Joel was at in his ministry because not a lot you know, again, given information-wise about it. Now, an early pre-exilic date seems to be the best fit, although, you know, we can't be very dogmatic on this. So that would place it anywhere from 835 to 796 BC. Now, the reasons are the placement of Joel in the Hebrew canon. It's, it's placed early on in, in the, the prophets, and so many believe that it was written earlier then than others were. The enemies that Joel named, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom, were enemies of Israel around that time. Joash, Judah's king, was just a boy during this time. Joel doesn't mention any kings as other prophets did, but rather gives great prominence to priests and to elders of Judah. So again, kind of seems to fit in with it being dated much earlier here. Now, that be the case, then Joel would be the earliest of the writing prophets, if that were the case, dating it back to this, you know, well beyond the pre-exilic days here. So, earliest of the writing prophets, perhaps, although we can't pinpoint the exact date. So, why is Joel writing this book? What, what is the occasion going on as to why Joel is writing this? Well, Joel's main theme is going to be about the day of the Lord. He's going to mention it five times. The day um, of the Lord. Let me bring up this side. I got behind here a little bit on this. The day of the Lord. And so there's where you see the five references to the book of Joel. The day of the Lord now, if you're wondering, what is the day of the Lord exactly? Well, the day of the Lord is a time where God actively intervenes in history primarily for judgment. He will deal with the actions of men, uh, their sins against God and against God's people, their rejection of God, rebellion against Him. And He's going to come and pour out His wrath upon these sins and these people because of their sin. Now, we'll talk a little bit more exactly when this is looking at. But in the book of Joel, this day the Lord is previewed by an intense locust invasion all right so it's kind of a visual picture and a reference point that joel is giving to his audience to reveal what this day of the lord is kind of gonna be like now that invasion literally took place in joel's day and it becomes this useful imagery to portray now what's going to be taking place at a future time when a human army is going to come against 
God's people here. This judgment of God is going to be a precursor to the day of the Lord and will be his means of judgment for a nation that had become empty in their worship. But in this book here, we see also the Lord's great plan of restoration. This is what I love about oftentimes when you're seeing this word of judgment going forth, God's holding on to, you know, again, listen guys, hold on. Though there's some heavy days coming, just you wait and see because I've also got plans, a future and a hope for you. I've got you know, plans of restoration and, and healing for you here. And so we're going to see that in the book of Joel again. But that always needs to come. Restoration is always going to be preceded by repentance. And that's the key. That's why the prophets are all right. And that's what their ministry is all about. God sending prophets into the land to tell the people, listen, would you repent? Would you turn from your sin? Because if you turn from your sin, God is going to heal you and restore you. Otherwise, if you do not choose to repent and turn from your sin, then God has to wake you up. He's got to shake you up. He's going to do that through his judgment that's coming. So Joel is doing just that here in, in this book here. Now, we see here in the book of Joel, kind of a three-part outline. We're going to see the past day of the Lord seen in that locust invasion, the past day of the Lord. We're going to see a near future day of the Lord, which is going to be seen by a human invasion. And then we're going to see that um, far day of the Lord, a future day of the Lord, which is going to be seen by another human invasion, but then also the deliverance of the Lord. So let's look at that verse 1 here, Joel 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So here's Joel now saying, listen, have you ever witnessed anything of this nature, this calamity before? And he's referencing this plague of locusts that have come in and just devoured the land. This is something they've experienced and seen here in their day and he wants them to see how really great and significant this really was they need to tell their children and their grandchildren all about it anytime there's something great that happens and and by and large when the lord is at work and doing something how we need to pass on these things to the next generations how we need to take the very word of god and pass it on to the next generations isn't that what the lord is always you know reminding us to do that was something that was built into you know uh Israel even with the very law. And the crown is how they were to pass that on to the children and the next generations, remind them of what the Lord has done and what he is doing. So again, this setting now or illustration of this locust invasion sets up really just kind of this picture now of God's pending judgment on those that have turned away from him. Look at verse 4. It says, What the chewing locust left... The swarming locust has eaten what the swarming locust left. The crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Now, Israel is the northernmost range of the migratory desert locust. During a single day, a locust swarm can travel 60 miles. During the course of a migration, a swarm may move up to 600 miles. In 1959, a locust plague in Ethiopia lasted six weeks. A conservative estimate in that uh, is that these locusts consumed enough 
food to feed one million people for a year. So pretty significant damage that these things bring. And there's a little picture of you. You might look at that and go, ah, but no, you don't want to have that thing hanging out around you or your crops at all. Now, in that verse, many have seen maybe different, you know, types or breeds, but also I think what we're more clearly seeing is these developmental stages of a locust, crawling locust, consuming locust, chewing locust, and the swarming locust. The consuming locust, or sorry, the crawling locust, just that kind of hatchling, right? Then the, cr- the consuming locust begins to kind of hop along. It's, it's, it's growing, it's maturing. The chewing locust is the winged hopper, all right? It's attacking not just ground vegetation, but up in the trees and the branches. Then the swarming locust, that's really the mature locust attacking even the the bark of a tree so just devouring everything in their sight so the different stages of locusts and the and the greater maturity the greater damage it brings you know it kind of reminds me of even what the bible says about the kind of stages of sin in a sense in in james chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 how it compounds upon one another but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed them when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so, man, how we need to be sure that we're not allowing any kind of room for sin to grow and to be compounded or, or maturing in our life because its end is the result of death, its destruction. And these locusts certainly were bringing just that. Now, over the next few verses, Joel calls upon different groups of people and calls them to mourn over the effects of you know their sin and the effects of judgment that's coming their way as pictured by the locusts and and they can look all around and see the the devastating path that these locusts have caused well now the pictures the judgment of god that's coming and how these people need to be mourning over these things so here's different groups of people uh Verses 5 to 7 in chapter 1. Wine connoisseurs should mourn. Because why? Well, their vine is going to be emptied. They're not going to have any more, any more wine available for them. Verses 8 to 10. Inhabitants of Jerusalem in general should mourn because their food supply is going to be decimated. Joel calls out to the farmers how they need to mourn because, again, their crops are going to be laid waste or have been laid waste by these locusts. Verse 13, priests should mourn because they can no longer bring a grain or a drink offering into the temple. And so these different groups of people are being called out in chapter 1 in those verses here. And how they need to mourn because they're experiencing the result of this destruction right now. But it's again just a preview of what God's going to be bringing at a later date because of their, their sin and their rebellion against God. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So just in this one verse alone, they were to do five different things. They were to fast, all right, which isn't too hard because most of the food's gone already. So there's like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, this is a, a fast that they have no choice in, in any way. So they're to fast, they're to assemble together, to come together, they're to gather the elders now, again, bring the leaders into the meeting and, and so the leaders can lead, bring everything or everyone to the house of the Lord now, and then also cry out to the Lord. So these are the five things they're to do, right? Fast, assemble together, 
gather the leaders that they might lead. Bring everyone to the house of the Lord. Come and meet with the Lord and cry out to Him. That would reveal their need for the Lord in this national calamity that they're going through. Again, their heart is to express this this desire for the Lord and, and to express their need for the Lord to come and be their help, the only help that they ultimately have. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So here again now, Joel brings us to the theme of his book. This is the very theme of the book, the day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord is this time when following the rapture of the church, again looking at this this future day of the Lord, the real day of the Lord, it's when the church is raptured up and it's going to allow now for the church to be removed and for the Lord to again directly intervene in the affairs of the world by pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. It's known as tribulation, okay? That's what's going on in the tribulation. It's, it's God's wrath upon a world that has rejected Christ. And before his judgment can come, He's going to remove the church at the rapture. So that's going to go on now, the tribulation, for seven years. And so that whole day the Lord includes the tribulation. It includes the second coming of Christ. And then also includes the the millennial reign of Jesus. Just like the Jews' day, which begins in darkness, because the day for a Jew starts at, at sunset. And then the day the Lord begins in darkness. But then it gradually, increasingly becomes more light as we move into the millennial reign of Christ. And so, just a great picture there for us. Now, at this point in the book, Joel is referring, in a lesser sense, to the day judgment they've experienced by the locusts as an example of that future day of the Lord. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, and people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. So Joel Joel now is describing a very numerous army coming their way at this point, right? I'm sure that's a, a bit of a shock to Israel right now. They're probably wondering if he's still talking about the locust. Though Joel may be one of the earliest prophetic books, we know how right he is in this very fact that God is going to raise up an army that's going to be his instrument of judgment. So now he's talking about this day of the Lord that's at hand because he's addressing this near future day of the Lord just as Joel, as many of the prophets, would oftentimes kind of see things sort of like with those, you know, bifocals or you know progressive lenses right where you have the one lens that you kind of look right in front of you and see everything very clearly but then you look up and you see another lens that allows you to see a little bit more out in front of you and then again to look out in a you know far vision way so this is what's happening with prophecy sometimes there's a near fulfillment and then a future fulfillment of that same word that's going on so as joel is addressing the day of the lord he's talking about something that's going to be happening Coming up with this human invasion. They've already seen a picture of it through the locust. There's a human invasion that's going to come. God's instrument of judgment against his people. But then we're also going to see that there's a future fulfillment of that. That is still 
to come. So they're facing this impending attack. And Joel is sounding the alarm. Why? So that people would repent. Look at verse 12. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Chapter 2, verse 14. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You see, the key to deliverance is just what Joel is pointing out, to return to the Lord. And not to return to the Lord in some kind of outward sign, because a lot of people can sit there and they can, they can muster up a lot of tears. They can really look the part like, we're sorry, God. But what God's interested in is, where's your heart at? It's easy to say the right things. It's easy to put on an expression of, oh, yes, I'm so wrong. Lord, would you do this? Would you help me here? There's a lot of people that love to put on a lot of emotion in that. But the Lord is saying, where's your heart at? Because what does the Lord say? He says here, rend your heart, not your garments. In other words, what they would do as a sign of mourning, they would tear their clothes. And that was an, a, a physical and outward display of showing, oh man, we are grieving. We're mourning over what's gone on. But the Lord says, I'm not looking just for an outward display. I want you to rend your heart. I want you to, I want you to be grieving within your heart for there to be true repentance. And true repentance is going to show by a turning of your ways, by action that's going to be demonstrated by leaving those things and turning back to the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from the wrong way, turning back to the right way with the Lord and in the Lord. So rend your heart, not just your garments. The Lord is always interested in the heart, in everything we do, you know, in worship, in service. Because there's so many ways that we can, we, can, we can fool one another. We can fool ourselves thinking we're doing all these things for the right reasons. Look at this great display I'm doing here in worship or service. But the Lord's saying, is your heart there? Is your heart behind it? Because that's what, when it becomes true worship, when it becomes true service that, that honors me and glorifies me is when your heart is true in it and you're not just going through the motions and so, continuing on in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send your grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Now remember, Joel is looking at these things with that near fulfillment, as I said, and a far fulfillment. So there's this northern army, chapter 2, verse 20, a northern army that's going to come. And that's speaking of the Assyrians that is soon going to be coming and, and attacking them, all right, causing trouble for them. But there will also be another army that's going to come at a future day that's going to come from the north. Where do we see that? Ezekiel 38, 39. Where from the north, we're going to see a Russian coalition, all right? Uh, an allied force that's going to come against Israel. And so again, we're going to see this be playing out here at a future day. Well, the word says that this will all happen because the enemy nation coming against Israel has done 
monstrous things, it says. Meaning they've been, they've been mighty and powerful. They've been putting fear into the lives of the Israelites. But notice what the Lord speaks forth. All right? They've done monstrous things, but fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. I like that. Oh, the enemy might do monstrous things, but guess what? The Lord does marvelous things. So don't be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully and he'll cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat and the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. So, in other words, don't fear over the might of the enemy. Rejoice in the Lord because he is yet mightier and he does marvelous things for us, all right? And along with that period of renewal that we're seeing here, they're going to see the land become fruitful and abundant again. See, drought and famine were oftentimes a byproduct of what? Of, of unfaithfulness and sin. And that's what the people have been experiencing. But on the flip side, God, God's people will look to him in repentance and God's going to forgive them and heal them. And that's what God has promised them all along. In Second Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God's always given that as a condition. When you perhaps get away from me, you're going to feel the effects of it, but come back, repent. And when you seek me, then I'll come and and answer that prayer. We'll forgive your sin and heal your land. So in that passage there, we're seeing the Lord do just that. So God's wonderful promise of restoration that comes from repentance. It's always the same for us. You know, sometimes we're going through calamity and, and, and dryness. Sometimes that's for reasons that we don't always know at the time, but the Lord is seeking us just to get our eyes on Him. And sometimes we're going through those things because of sin. And, and how we need to come and repent of that sin. I mean, notice what we, we saw earlier there. I, I love that what we read in, in chapter 2, verse um, 13, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. That's the God we need to understand that we're coming to, who's gracious and kind, and He wants to forgive you so that you can be restored in fellowship and relationship with Him. So when sin comes, when we get tripped up, don't let that sin keep you from God. May that sin cause us to run all the more quickly to God to find that forgiveness and grace and mercy and help in time of need because He's gracious and kind, slow to anger, and He wants to restore you. And that's the word now to the people here. Look at what we read in verse 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel. I'm the Lord your God and there's no other. My people shall never be put to shame. That's a great blessing there for us. God doesn't just receive us, save us and, and pick us up with whatever's left now and just go, okay, well, I'll see what I can do with this, you know, broken vessel. No. He doesn't see us just as damaged people, but he begins to restore those things that the locust has once devoured, right? It, I'm going to restore to you the years 
that the locust has eaten. God picks us up and he makes us new. And he does a greater work than we ever thought possible, a greater work than we've ever seen when we allow the Lord to do that work of restoration in us. He's going to restore those years that were once wasted. So many times people think, oh, the Lord can't use me, the Lord can't, can't take me because I'm just, I'm just broken goods. I'm no, I, I'm no good. My, my life has been so devoured by sin that I don't know if there's anything left to use. But you know what? Lord says, no, I just need a willing heart. Because when we come to the Lord, man, He makes us brand new. He restores that. And, and He takes us into better places than we've ever been and, and never thought we could be. It's all through His grace and His love and His power and His might. We're so thankful for that. So, we've seen the, the present day of the Lord, the near future day of the Lord. But now we see this far future day of the Lord. Look at verse 28. Familiar verses here. And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So throughout the Old Testament, we've seen the Holy Spirit come and be given to specific people for specific purposes for a specific time. It was never poured out upon people as a whole or on all flesh. But Joel speaks of a time now where God will bring about his ultimate restoration and blessing. And it'll be marked by an outpouring of God's spirit on all flesh. No believers of God are going to be exempt from this. We've got sons and daughters, old men, young men, men servants, maid servants, all mentioned here. It's like just going right across the board. Nobody's excluded from this. Now, this passage should be very familiar to us because, of course, this is what Peter quotes at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, right? People in the upper room were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, and many of the onlookers were going, what is going on? These people all drinking, right? This guy's drunk. Peter's like going, no, it's just in the morning time. You know, we don't start drinking until, like, lunchtime, so it's all fine. But Peter says this, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Oh, what you're seeing, what we're experiencing, this is exactly what Joel spoke about, what Joel prophesied. And many see Pentecost as the beginning of this, but it's having its ultimate fulfillment still in the last days. Peter doesn't say this is what is now fulfilled. To what Joel said, he said, this is what Joel spoke about, but it has its future fulfillment at a later day. Notice we see there's great cosmic signs that are accompanying this event. And that didn't happen at Pentecost. Look at verse 30 of chapter 2. It says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Jesus spoke of these same signs preceding his return. Matthew 24, verse 29 to 31. We don't have time to read through all that, but write that down if you're taking notes, and I hope you are. So in that time, Joel says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That time that we're looking at, the great and awesome day of the Lord, is speaking of the time of the tribulation leading up to the second coming of Christ and then ushering in the millennial reign of Christ. It's the time of the tribulation is God's judgment being poured out 
on that Christ-rejecting world. But the Israelites, as Paul records in Romans 9 to 11, who are blind in part. Well, during that tribulation, what's going to be happening is that God is going to be, again, working through his people. And he's going to be calling his people back to him. And there's going to be a great repentance and deliverance upon his people Israel where the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon them. Zechariah chapter 12, they're going to recognize Jesus for who he is. They're going to call out to him and they're going to be saved. Just as Paul writes that all Israel will be saved, all Israel will be saved in that day as they call out to the Lord. They're not going to be forgotten. They're not going to be abandoned. The Lord's going to use that tribulation period to draw them back to him you see it's going to be marked that tribulation period by a great revival going on that you're going to have the 144,000 sealed that are going to become these evangelists that are going to witness so during the tribulation but many people are going to get saved it's going to be an amazing time the holy spirit's going to be poured out the holy spirit's being poured out right now upon the church this this age of the, the this church age right now we're seeing that happening but man we're, we're going to continue to see it happening in the day of the lord during the tribulation, it's amazing when I think about it that here's this time of judgment for a christ rejecting world. And you look at what's going on in the world and you think, yeah, oh boy, there's a lot of things that are, are ripe for judgment. But yet, through His judgment, God's showing mercy and grace and allowing the Holy Spirit to continue to be poured out upon people's lives and drawing them into salvation. That's amazing. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't God good? Oh, it's going to be great to see. We'll be, we'll be witnessing it. You know, from 30,000, having our own 30,000 feet, steady from 30,000 feet, literally. But it's going to be great. We won't be here. We'll be witnessing it from above. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I bring the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations. Notice this. This is what we're talking about. It's tribulation time. Day judgment. I'm going to bring those nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people and have given a boy's payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. So the tribulation period is going to be marked by a, a spirit of intense anti-Semitism and we're seeing it ramping up, intensifying even today, Right? We see that all around here where Israel continues to be forsaken, forgotten by, by many. And there will come nations led by the Antichrist during that tribulation period who will come against Israel for one purpose, that is to destroy her. Remember when, when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. Like he's telling his people, Israel, get out of here because it's not going to be safe for you. Flee. But... It's going to be at this time that Jesus again is going to come back and gather these nations that are coming against Israel. That's what he says there in verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm going to gather all the nations, right? I'm going to bring them together into the valley of Jehoshaphat there. This place of judgment. This is known as this kind of battle of Armageddon. And the battle of Armageddon is not a, a, a one-time kind of event. It's sort of a campaign in a sense. A campaign that's going to be going on. Here's the campaign of Armageddon as I see it, as I believe is going to unfold. First of all, you're going to see the gathering of the armies of Antichrist at the Valley of Armageddon, Revelation 16, Valley of Megiddo. You're going to see the destruction of Babylon, Isaiah 13, Revelation 18 talks about it. The fall of Jerusalem then, Zechariah 12. 
We see the armies of the Antichrist at Bozrah, Isaiah 63. Remember, Jesus comes and he puts a stop to that. And it records how, who's his coming out of Bozrah with, with um, you know, garments stained in, in red, right? Israel's regeneration, Zechariah 12. We're going to see the second coming of Christ, Micah 2. End of the fighting at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is recorded here in Joel 3. And then Christ's victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. So there's going to be various things that are going to be taking place during this kind of, you know, battle of Armageddon, where there's going to be a lot of things, fires that are being snuffed out, put out, you know, that the Lord is going to be active in doing. And look at chapter 3, verse 10. It says, beat your plowshares, or plowshares, plow, how do you say that word? Plowshares, thank you. Plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears that the weak say, I am strong. And so what we've seen here, again, tells people, listen guys, that day of the Lord is going to be an intense time. All right? It's, it's, there's going to be, you're going to be in for a fight here. All right? So you're going to need to be prepared. It's kind of a, a reversal of what prophecy was given in Isaiah 2, verse 4, where it says there to beat your, um, take your, your weapons and turn them into, you know, plowshares and, and everything like that. Because you're not going to need weapons any longer because that's speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. All right, this time of peace. But this isn't the case right now. All right, they're going to be needing to prepare for war. Not that they're going to have much to do with it again because the Lord's going to come back and save them. That's why it says, let the weak say I am strong because you got the Lord on your side as you turn to the Lord. Isn't that great? No matter what your weakness is today, you can say, in the Lord I am strong because He is fighting for you. He is on your side and how we need to lean on Him and trust in Him and, and know that we don't do this on our own strength because I am weak, but in Him I am strong. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So those that stand in this valley of decision are going to have the Lord make their decision. This isn't where you want to be. You don't want to be in the valley of decision. Because that time is going to be too late. How we need to make that decision now. People are in a sense standing in that valley of decision where every person must decide who they're going to serve. And today's the day to make that decision before you lose that opportunity to make that decision. Well, that's the book of Joel. So again, ends in great promise and hope as the Lord comes and is going to restore them and help them. The book of Amos now. Listen, we didn't know much about Joel, but we know a little bit more about Amos because Amos now gives a little bit more of a description of who he is. Look at verse 1. Chapter 1, the words of Amos, who is among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the sons of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, here we see that Amos was a sheep breeder or sheep herder. He's, he's one that's raising sheep, all right? That's kind of this Hebrew word, this word nocade, which is only used a couple times is referencing not just a shepherd, but a, a sheep breeder, one that's raising sheep. So, un understand something. This is neat. Amos, he's just a regular guy, all right? He didn't go to the school of the prophets. He didn't come from a line of prophets or priests or anything of, uh, of royalty by any means. 
He's just a regular guy. And I love that because the Lord is not looking for qualified or special people. He's looking for people that just have a willing heart to serve Him. That are willing to walk in obedience to the Lord. That's what the Lord is looking for. And He can take anybody, just the regular average Joe, and do great things to them if we are willing to allow the Lord to do that work. So here's Amos, just just raising sheep. And yet the Lord calls him for a specific purpose and, and a, a special role. Amos now, what's interesting, he's living down in Tekoa, it says. Tekoa is about 10 to 12 miles southwest of Jerusalem. But Amos is called to go and minister to the northern kingdom of Israel and to center his ministry in Bethel, which had kind of become the capital there in the northern kingdom. So this is where... where uh, Amos is going. And we have a good idea when he ministered because he mentions two kings. King Uzziah, who's down in the southern kingdom, reigned from 792 to 740 BC. And he also mentions Jeroboam too, who's reigning in the northern kingdom. And he reigned from 793 to 753 BC. So both kings are mentioned. And, and so we get a bit of an idea now of when he's ministering. Anywhere between, you know, 760 and 753 BC, approximately uh, 32 to 38 years before um, Israel's Assyrian captivity. All right, so that's kind of the timeline that we're looking at. Now, why did Amos write this? What is he called to do? What's the occasion going on? Well, the time that Amos ministered to this nation of Israel in the northern kingdom, it was a very prosperous time. The nation was doing quite well financially they were not having any armies or nations breathing down their necks they had become very comfortable politically and economically yet it's in these times that we often become very comfortable and complacent our devotions might wane we're not as you know dependent on the lord it's in those times that people are in danger thinking that they can get by without the lord that's the situation here in Amos's day that Amos is called now to address and deal with and get them back to seeing their need for the Lord or else, again, trouble is going to come. Everything can change in a moment. And so this is what he's being called to address. So here's what we're looking at here as the book of Amos unfolds here. We're going to see the roar of judgment in chapters 1 and 2. We're going to see the reasons for judgment in chapters 3 to 6. We'll see the results of judgment, chapter 7 to 9. And then at the end, we're going to see again the restoration after judgment. All right? So the roar of judgment, the reasons for judgment, the results of judgment, and the restoration after judgment. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So... Amos begins his prophecy with that description of the Lord roaring like a mighty lion, ready to bring about this judgment. With each nation being called out, we're going to see a similar formula being used. Look at verse 3. Here's this formula. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Look at verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, and so on. It goes on to Ammon in verse 13, and then it goes on to Moab in chapter 2. So these are the nations that are being called out in judgment 
here, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. So it's not that they have three transgressions and the Lord says, oh, oh yeah, and then there's, there's one more I thought I'd throw on there for you. It's not three transgressions and four. This is just a, a form of being used to kind of give this idea that, you know, um, they've, they've committed these sins and, and that the Lord is coming to deal with it. Some have seen three and then four, three plus four equaling seven, which number of, of completion. And it's as though it's a poetic way almost of showing that their sins have reached their completion and the Lord needs to come and, and deal with it now in a sense. That's how some people have, have looked at it here. So it just really has that idea there's been sin upon sin and now it's time to, to deal with it. So this judgment's coming upon these nations and as Israel is hearing all these judgments coming against all their neighboring nations, they're sitting back, I'm sure, going, oh, this is great. Yeah, Lord, I've had it, man. Get, take it to them. Yeah, they, they have been causing problems for us. But then we see right there in verse 4 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah. Gulp. Uh, that's getting a little close to home, right? And then verse 6 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, oh boy, that's hitting right at home now. Because again, Amos is ministering to the northern kingdom of Israel. And now they're hearing all these nations being called out in chapter 1. And now all of a sudden, it starts coming to them too. Judah. And then Israel, listen, you're not exempt from this. You're not safe by any means here. In fact, Judah and Israel won't exactly be condemned for their abuses or inhumanity towards others. As the other nations have been but rather for their complacency and disregard for the law of the Lord, the Mosaic Covenant. You see, they've had greater knowledge. And, and with that knowledge comes greater responsibility. They have a higher standard that they're going to be judged by. Just as, as Peter would say in chapter 4, verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of, the, of God. And if it begins with us first, what would be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So... Yeah, this judgment needs to come to them. There's a greater responsibility that they have here. Now, from chapters 3 to 6, all right, we have five messages that are given by Amos. The first three all begin with these words, hear this word. You see that in chapter 3? Hear this word. And you'll see it again in, in um, oh boy, in verse, chapter 4, chapter 5, you'll see it. So, hear this word. All right, that's up. And then the next two messages begin with the words, woe to you. That word woe is kind of like that word woe when you're riding a horse, right? Whoa, it's like, slow down, all right? We're getting too ahead of ourselves. Let's slow down here. Let's just kind of think about these things here a little bit. That's kind of what the word is going on. Woe to you. You got to stop. You got to think about these things. It reminds me of that man and i'm sure you've heard this went to ride a horse and and this horse is a little bit special because it didn't respond by the famous you know regular giddy up and whoa in fact this horse was trained by a christian and so to get this horse to go you had to say praise the lord to get the horse to stop you had to say amen so the guy gets on the horse like well that's interesting so he says giddy up nothing happens remember oh yeah god said praise the lord she says praise the lord this horse starts going says, praise the Lord again. This horse starts going faster and faster. And soon he's realizing this horse is heading right for a cliff. He's getting closer and closer. He starts panicking. He starts going, whoa, 
whoa. And the horse doesn't respond. He's not doing it. He's going, getting close to the cliff. Go, whoa. And also remembers, oh my goodness, no, he doesn't respond. Well, I got to say amen. He yells, amen. And the horse stops. And the guy wipes the sweat from his brow and he goes, praise the Lord. <clears throat> so, woe to you is this word going out to them. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So the reason that God was focusing on Israel in this judgment was because, again, they're in this special relationship with God. So God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. In this context, it's, in, it's implying that they were these ones that God chose to make a nation for himself, to be his special agents, and the purpose was to reveal his glory. So the nation of Israel had an incredible, privileged relationship with the Lord. But that privilege, as I've said, has brought greater responsibility, and they've not been living up to it. So over these four chapters, we see many reasons for judgment. We see in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, unparalleled oppression by God's people, by Israel. We see economic exploitation, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. We, uh, chapter 4, hear this word, you... I sh- you know what? No, I shouldn't. Okay, we're going to leave that. Yeah, forget it. Okay. No, I'll tell you. It's kind of funny. It's just humorous because... Hear the words, it says, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring your wine, let us drink to hear. See, Bashan was this area that was really known for luxury, for, for wealth. And so he's referring to these cows of Bashan as, you know, the woman living there. So never, never men refer to your wives that way and say it's biblical it's just not right to do that okay so just don't go there all right um not not wise but that's what what amos is calling out to them as so this economic exploitation that we see there there's religious hypocrisy that's been going on all right again they've been going through the motions of of paying you know lip service to the lord bringing offerings and sacrifices but it's been selfish in nature it's been hypocritical There's been stubbornness and repenting. They haven't been responding to the Lord. There's been legal injustices going on. They've been boasting in complacency in chapter 6, verse 1 and 3. And again, just great luxurious indulgences going on in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 6. So, Amos is warning them of all the reasons why judgment is, is coming. And like Joel, Amos talked about the day of the Lord as well. But again, they saw the day of the Lord as one specific day. Generally, for the, the, the Hebrew people, when they heard the day of the Lord, they're thinking, oh, it, this is going to be a great day. This is going to be the day when the Lord comes and delivers us and destroys our nations. And they saw that as being like, one day. It's going to be a great day. We're looking forward to the day of the Lord, right? That's how they saw it. But notice the word that comes through Amos here. In chapter 5, verse 18. Go to chapter 5, verse 18 of Amos. He says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It'll be darkness and not light. Who? Have you ever hoped for something, had really high expectations for something, and then were sorely disappointed with the end result? Not at all what you expected? Well, that, that's what's happening here 
with the people of Israel. They're expecting this day of the Lord to be everything in their favor. But the day of the Lord is going to be a time where they're going to be on the run. They're, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be reaping some of the, the consequences of their own sin. Yes, it'll be a day that the Lord has planned where He's going to deliver them and save them, yes. But it's not going to be before they have to endure a lot of difficulty and hardship at the hands of these nations that are conspiring against them, being led of the Antichrist in these things. So, what good is the day of the Lord to you, he's saying? If they had put their hope in the Lord from the get-go, they wouldn't have to deal with these things. So, here's the reasons for judgment. Let's look at the results of judgment. In chapter 7, Amos receives three visions, all right? Chapter 7, we see the vision of the locusts. We see the vision of the fire and then the vision of the plumb line. In the first two, those visions of the locusts coming, devouring the land again, the fire coming and burning and just desolating everything, it, it allowed Amos to pray and intercede basically. Just as like what Moses did when he interceded for the Lord's people there, for the Lord not to devour them. It allowed Amos to kind of intercede and for the Lord to reveal and show this mercy. But that third vision, the vision of the plumb line, revealed the judgment that, that couldn't be held back, that was necessary to come. All right? So what is a plumb line here? What is that all about? Well, the plumb line, again, those of you that like construction, I'm sure you'll know. I've become very acquainted with it in my recent days but a plumb line was something that you would hang down with a weight on the string and it would hang down and you would put it by you know your construction your wall and it would reveal how straight your wall was so if your wall your string your plumb line is here and your wall is kind of like that you're realizing oh man i'm way off you might look at that wall and go that looks pretty straight to me eyeballing it but when you hang the plumb line you reveal that's gotten way off that's not level. That's not, that's not straight at all. So the Lord reveals his plumb line vision to show Amos and all of Israel that they've gotten off the level here. They've gotten away from the Lord and from his word. They've gotten out of, out of sync with them. They're very crooked in, in where they're going and what they're doing here. See, God's word for us provides this perfect level or this straight standard that we need to follow and adhere to as we get in the word of god we begin to realize oh man i've been kind of leaning the wrong way in these things i've not been aligned with this how i need to straighten myself and become again aligned to god's word so that was the vision of the plumb line here and it revealed again what god must do because of their own sin and getting away from the things of the lord chapter 8 of Amos has one more vision. It's the basket of summer fruit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, well, basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fall, saying, when will the new moon be passed? When? That we may sell grain in the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large. 
falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. So again, you're starting to see now just some of their actions and the reasons, you know, again, for judgment coming. But the summer fruit, this basket of summer fruit spoke of this fruit that was ripe. It was ripe. And this pictures how the nation was ripe for judgment. All right? It, it was just going to go bad any day now. It's ripe for judgment. And the Lord's not going to pass by them anymore, it says. Again, all this will come upon them because they've been deceitful. They practiced injustice, as we read there. They've been oppressing the poor. Things that the Lord doesn't take too kindly to. All right? The Lord loves to see His people treating others fairly, properly. So that's what God desires. Now, yet with all this that's been going on, the Lord still manages to bring a word of hope and encouragement. So we see the restoration out of judgment. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountain shall drip with sweet vine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So in the days when God restores Israel, the land is going to become so productive that the plowman who starts in October will have to wait for the reaper who should have finished in May. The one who treads grapes in July will find the planter still sowing new seed into the ground broken by the long-delayed plowman. And the grapes will hang so heavy in the mountain vineyards that the hills will drip and flow or melt with this new wine. This is what God is going to do at a future day. All right? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when you're going to see a reversal here. When you come to me in repentance and I'm going to bless you and bless land, I'm going to bring you back into land. They're going to return from captivity and they're going to return in a future time and will no longer be uprooted again. So, that's a future day. Hey, one more chapter to go. Obadiah. One chapter. One hit wonder here, Obadiah, all right? Now, we didn't know much about Joel. We know a little bit more about Amos. We know nothing at all about Obadiah, all right? There's nothing written about Obadiah, though there are 12 people in the Old Testament that are named Obadiah. It's a popular name, all right, like John in the New Testament. But we don't know if any of those Obadiahs named are the actual writer of this book here other than what we see here, the vision of Obadiah. So Obadiah is a unique book. We do know what his name means. It means servant of Yahweh. That's exactly what he's doing as he's bringing this word to not Israel or Judah, but to again Edom. All right. Now the message in Obadiah is essentially summed up in what we read in Lamentations 4 verse 22. It says there, the punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter Zion, speaking of, of Israel and Jerusalem. He will no longer send you into captivity he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. The idea is that there will be restoration for Judah, but judgment is going to come upon Edom. All right? So, since this is basically a word against Edom, it's important for us to know who Edom is. Now, Edom was a nation that was descended from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Edom was located 
uh, east of the Dead Sea. Now, we know with Esau and Jacob, all right, that there was a lot of bad blood between them, all right? A lot of bad blood between these two, and, and it continued on through all of their descendants so that whenever we hear about Edom in the Bible, it's usually in reference to how they are mistreating Israel, how they are coming against Israel, how they're being a thorn in the side of Israel. So much so that whenever we kind of even hear about different nations, sometimes Edom is just used as a substitute for Israel's enemies because they've been such a, a, a perennial kind of thorn in their side. Well, let's look at what we'll see here in Obadiah. First of all, we'll see Edom's pride, Edom's crimes, God's judgment on Israel's enemies, and God's blessings on Israel's people. Let's look at some of the problems with Edom here. Look at Obadiah 3, verse 3. Here's what it says. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So what's the first thing you see about Edom? They're very what? Somebody? Prideful. Completely prideful. Now, Edom was prideful in part because of their chief city, which was Petra. All right? Petra was this rock city carved out of the rocks. It was, it was this city thought to be impregnable. It had steep cliffs 200 to 300 feet high with only one narrow canyon that was about a mile long as its entrance into the city. We've taken a few tours there. We've been on the walk through there and you begin to see, wow, what an amazing city this is. And we walked through all the ruins of the city. Yeah, did you hear that? Ruins of the city. The city that was thought to be impregnable. Who's going to bring us down, they said. Who's going to take us down from this perch, this nest that we're in? So here we read in verse 3 that this pride has just deceived them. They thought that no trouble could ever befall them, but they forgot to take God into account. See, pride is always deceptive as it causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And oftentimes, it's the Lord that needs to step in and kind of knock us down a notch to reveal that, oh, we're not who we think we are. I've allowed myself to get prideful in my own ability or strength instead of trusting the Lord. Notice what we read in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Did I already have that up there? Okay, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So, Edom's kind of a walking testimony of Proverbs 16, 18 here. Pride went before destruction. And that haughty spirit went before their fall. Not only were they proud, but they showed disdain towards their brother Jacob, even rejoicing over Judah's calamity when they fell in the captivity. Look at what we read in verse 12. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. That idea of gazing is this idea of gloating over boasting in what was happening to their kind of, you know, family in a sense, right? I mean, they're, they're related here and they're rejoicing over what's happening to Israel and Judah in their fall. He gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. 
nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So notice what we're reading there. I mean, these guys just, they came in, they laughed, they mocked, they made it hard for them to flee. They, they actually caused them to, again, be handed over to, to their enemies. Verse 15. For the day the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yet, yes, they shall drink and swallow and they shall be as though they had never been. Whew, that's heavy. That's, that's going to hit you right between the eyes there. So this gives us the center or the theme of this prophecy. As you've done, so it shall be done to you. Right? That's a basic principle with the Lord, right? You reap what you sow. Do on others as you'd have them do unto you. He carries out just weights and measures now upon Edom. As they were hard on Israel, God is going to show himself strong against them. You took advantage of them in the day of destruction, so others now are going to take advantage on you or of you in your day of destruction. As you betrayed them, so too your allies are going to turn on you. So God's letting them know. This is what's going to come upon you for what you've done. In a similar way, when, when Jesus speaks to those nations, when, when at the end of the tribulation he divides them up, remember what Jesus is going to say. What you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. And what you haven't done for them, he says, oh, you haven't done unto me. That's going to be a big gauge for Jesus in that last days. How have you treated his people? And so Edom now is being told, as you have done, it's going to be done unto you. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion, notice, isn't this great? Because each of these books we've looked at tonight, man, judgment, judgment, but glimmer of hope, restoration, deliverance. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them and no survivor shall remain in the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. So on the Lord's holy mountain, Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. That's seen as the Lord's dwelling place. And those that are seeking Him and seeking refuge in Him, what's going to happen? They're going to find deliverance from wrath. And the house of Jacob, Israel, is going to possess all that God has set out for them to possess. Israel never has fully possessed all that God has. When, he's, when He laid out for them the very land that He was giving to them or had given them, right? Not will give them, but it's yours. They failed to take all that God had given them. But there's going to come a time when they will possess their possessions, it says. There's going to come a time when Israel will experience the fullness of what God has for them. Oh, I pray that, that we're those that are walking in the fullness of what God has for us. That that's that prayer that we pray, right? Just as, it's just coming to mind right now, but... Um, I probably won't be able to find it now, but it's that prayer that Paul prays about just, you know, that having that fullness of what God 
has for you. And so I just pray that, you know, we recognize that God has much for us. That God wants to bless you. He's a, he's a blessing God, right? If we're not experiencing those blessings, then we'd ask ourselves, why aren't I? Because God wants to do that. God wants us to walk in the fullness that he has. What's tripping me up? What's holding me back? What's getting in the way of me receiving that? Let us, let us evaluate our own hearts. Let us take it to the Lord and say, God, reveal to me if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me walk in the fullness of what you have for me that I might possess all that you've got for me because God has great things for us. Not just future tense as he does, but he wants to, to walk in that abundance of life now. And I pray that we are, because that's God's word and hope for us here tonight as we've seen all through this here. Judgment, judgment, but glimmer of hope. Because God desires, in the end, restoration, deliverance, fullness of life in Him. May we walk in that ourselves here. All right? Well, let's pray. Three books, guys, we did it. Hey, that's a record here at Riverside, I think. Obadiah, you can't really count Obadiah, but we will. Sounds better, three books. Okay, let's pray. So Lord, we just thank you for uh, this opportunity to be here tonight, to sing and worship you, God, to lift up your name. And as we rejoice in you, as we look to you, as we just again come and just remind ourselves of who you are. And as we look in your word, Lord, and going through these minor prophets, it's, it's heavy at times. But yet tonight, help us to just be reminded that, God, you desire the best for us. And ultimately, that's why your judgment came, was to to deal with sin, so that they might walk in what you have for them. I pray that we're not having to experience a judgment, Lord, because you've already took that judgment for us. Help us to be those that are walking in newness of life day by day, walking in the fullness of what you have for us, God. Being renewed. Lord, each and every day, as we're, again, just seeing that plumb line through the Word of God come and reveal to us where we're off, centered, where we're not straight, so we might align ourselves with you and walk in that fullness of life you have for us, possessing all that you've got for us, Lord. We're thankful that you're a good God. You're a a, a blessing God. And so may we just continue to live in you and rejoice in you and and, and share these wonderful truths with, with those around us. So we ask these things now in your name, Jesus. Amen.